You can be opening up in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 is where we will be today. I hope that you've read ahead, uh, you know kind of what's coming, and, uh, and you're already uh, beginning on your own to learn uh, from these verses. And we pray that the Lord would continue to teach us from this letter, 1 Thessalonians. The title of our message today is Gospel Encouragement, Children of Light. Gospel Encouragement, Children of Light. I want to begin by reading this passage from God's Word. We're going to begin there in verse number 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day... Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord, church. You know the familiar saying, sometimes it is worded in a little bit different ways, but you know it. You could probably finish it before I even finish. If it walks, you got it? You know it now, don't you? If it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, then it's probably a duck, right? And maybe you word it a little bit differently, but we, we know it. We probably all said it at some point or had someone say it to us. The point of that saying is that something's identity can often be um, determined uh, by someone from the outside looking at them. Their identity can often be determined uh, by their actions. That's basically what that means. If, if, if a person um, is acting a certain way, then we kind of know something about that person, maybe something about their character, maybe something about, that, uh, about where they're from, maybe they're talking a certain way. I can tell who that person is or what kind of person he is based on his or her actions. Why, why is this the case? Well, because our actions really flow from what's inside. Our actions reveal who we are. A duck has the DNA of a duck and therefore walks and talks like a duck. A human has the DNA of a human and therefore walks and talks like a human. If we saw a human walking around and talking like a duck, we would rightly assume that something was very wrong with that human. In the same way, if we saw a duck walking around and talking like a human, we would rightly assume something is really wrong <laughs> with that duck. Now, I highly doubt there was even a moment in your life last week where you struggled with whether or not to live out your identity as a human. I think I'm safe to say that there was not one second this past week where you were tempted to jump into a pond, start paddling around, and start quacking like a duck. I have great confidence that all of your actions this past week were, at the very least, human actions, right? However, and I'm speaking to Christians now, it is highly likely that there were moments last week where you struggled with whether or not to live out your identity as a Christian. I think I'm safe to say there were plenty of, of moments, plenty of seconds, plenty of minutes over the past week where you were tempted to jump into the world and start walking around thinking and talking and acting like the world. But brothers and sisters, as ridiculous as it would be for a human to live like a duck, 
It is just as ridiculous for a child of light to live like he or she belongs to the darkness. Being a Christian most definitely means that we have a glorious hope for the future. And we've been talking about that the past couple of weeks. I have enjoyed it. I think you have as well. It's been awesome. We'll continue even today to talk more about this glorious hope for the future. But as glorious as that hope is, that glorious hope for the future that we have as followers of Christ has a massive impact on how we live right now in the present. And so we can't properly think about and look forward to what's coming for us without it changing and having an impact on how we live right now. Church, because of Jesus, we have a future hope that changes how we live in the present. Because of Jesus, we have a future hope. We know what that hope is. Hope of eternity with the Lord. But it changes how we live in the present. As Paul and Silvanus and Timothy write to the church of the Thessalonians, they offer words of what we've called gospel encouragement. Back in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, uh, they encouraged the believers with the uh, gospel truth that because of Jesus, we can have hope in the face of death. Because when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise from the dead when he comes to gather his church. Then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, uh, we found this encouragement for believers, this gospel truth that because of Jesus, we don't have to fear the coming judgment of God. Why? Because believers in Jesus are both aware and prepared for that coming judgment. We looked at this last week and, and we saw that this is because our identity has been changed. If you'll back up just a moment and refresh your memory, look at verse 5. I didn't read that a moment ago, but back up one verse, look at verse 5. Paul says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. He's talking about believers and he's speaking about their identity. They once belonged to darkness, but now they're children of light. Church, everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus for salvation has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, to the kingdom of light, which means we'll escape God's coming judgment on the day of the Lord. That's good news. That should fill our hearts with joy. But our new identity not only changes our future when Jesus returns, listen, it changes how we live right now. Last week I shared with you two truths about children of light from verses 1 through 5. Today I want to share three more truths about children of light from verses 6 through 11. And remember, if you skip ahead to verse 11, we know that the point of all of this is to encourage believers. To encourage and strengthen believers. First truth for us today is this. Children of light align their conduct uh, with their future salvation from judgment. Children of light align their conduct with their future salvation from judgment. You ever heard a parent or a teacher, lots of parents and teachers in here, so you've probably said it yourself. You ever heard a parent or teacher tell a child, you need to start acting your age? Kids, your mama ever said that to you? Your daddy ever said that? You need to start acting your age? Yeah, we've, we've probably heard that. Now, Paul's not being quite that forceful here, but he is saying something similar as the, as, as the parent who says, start acting your age. Whenever a parent or teacher says that to a child, the point is that the child's behavior at that point is not aligned with his age. Perhaps he's 10 years old, but his whiny attitude is more of what you expect from a two-year-old, right? And so you say, start acting your age. The parent is reminding the child of his age, so his behavior will hopefully change so that it matches his age. The parent could say it this way, act like a 10-year-old because you are a 10-year-old. Identity and behavior. Paul is here calling the believers to act as children of light. Why? 
because they are children of light. He says, so then, beginning here of verse 6, so then, which forces us to think back to verse 5 where he had described their new identity as children of light. So then, in light of your new identity, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Sober. Now, back in chapter 4, we saw uh, Paul use the word sleep to refer to death. Do you remember that? He used the word sleep to talk about death. But that's not how he's using the word sleep here. Here he's using the word sleep to refer to behavior that belongs to the darkness. So when he says in this verse um, that you're not, you're not supposed to be sleeping, in other words, he's saying you're not supposed to be engaging in works of darkness. He says there are others who sleep. Others do this. Who are those others? Others are unbelievers. They belong to the darkness, and therefore they engage in behavior that belongs to the darkness. In Ephesians, Paul calls this the unfruitful works of darkness, but not children of light. Not children of light. Children of light are awake spiritually, and so they don't live as if they're asleep. They live as if they're awake, awake to the things of the Lord, awake to, awake to the commands of the Lord, awake to the, the ways that God wants us to live in this world. So if we're not to sleep, Paul says, don't sleep, then what are we to do? Well, he goes on in verse 6 and says, um, instead of sleeping, let us be awake, keep awake, and be sober. Keep awake and be sober. God commands us here to be watchful and self-controlled. As children of light, we want to be awake. We want to stay alert. Like last week, we uh, looked at the, the verses 1 through 5. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We don't know that specific time. We know that he is. We don't know the specific day and time. And so we want to stay awake. And part of staying awake, realizing that Jesus could come at any time, is then going to lead us to want to live in such a way that we're doing his will when he comes. We want him to find us doing what he wants us to do when he returns. And so we stay awake to the truth that Christ could come at any time, and that leads us to live for him. But also it says, as children of light, we want to be sober. Or another way you can say that is to be self-controlled. Paul's using another analogy here. This is all sorts of imagery that Paul uses. He goes from one to the other um, in this passage of Scripture. Here, he, he's, he's, he's using the imagery of, of uh, being sober versus being drunk. Just like alcohol can fog your mind and cloud your thinking, which leads you to act in inappropriate ways, we don't want to be lulled into sinful living as children of light. Listen, the temptations are there. They're all around us. The temptations to engage in works of darkness, but we want to be alert and self-controlled so that we can resist the temptation and act like who we are, children of light. The Apostle Peter uses the imagery of soberness more than once in his first New Testament letter in order to call Christians to right behavior in light of the second coming of Christ. Peter joins these same truths together just like Paul does. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, there's the alertness and self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the future hope. And then think, look at how he connects that right back to how we live in the present. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So he puts all three of those things together. The future hope, self-controlled and alert in our thinking and living so that we'll live in holiness. Now Paul goes on in verse 7 here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and gives a further explanation. He says, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Again, the point is to get the Thessalonian believers to think about whether or not their conduct is aligned with who they are in Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, it makes sense that sleepers sleep at night. And it makes sense that drunkards get drunk at night. Likewise, it makes sense that unbelievers act like unbelievers. And that believers act like 
believers, like they belong to the light. But what doesn't make sense is for believers to act like unbelievers. That is for children of light to engage in works of darkness. Do you remember back at the beginning of chapter 4? We saw that God's will for us is our sanctification. Remember that back in chapter 4, verse 3? God's will for you is your sanctification. We said that sanctification in this context is the process whereby we, 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 we look more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world as Christians. It, it, it's, it's, the, it's the process of us being set apart from the ways of the world to the ways of God. Church, light is set apart from darkness. Light looks different than darkness. Light is the opposite, I think we would all agree, of darkness. And so if we belong to light, then it only makes sense that our behavior is set apart from the darkness of the world around us. But yet how often, church, is it the case that our behavior blends in with the world around us instead of being set apart from the world around us? I know that's often true in my life. But I'll venture to say that whenever our lives as children of light begin to blend in with the world around us, it's not because the world around us is beginning to engage in works of light. Rather, it's because believers are beginning to engage in works of darkness. In other words, whenever uh, the light of Christians is not standing out in the darkness of our world, the reason is not that the world is growing less dark. The reason is that Christians are giving off less light. So we can't blame the world. We can't talk about the world. We've got to talk about ourselves. Again, verse 8, Paul brings us back to our identity and connects it immediately with how we act. He says, but since we belong to the day, there's our identity, let us be sober. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. The point is very clear. Let your actions correspond to the realm to which you belong. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we belong to the realm of light. We are citizens, Paul says in Philippians, of heaven. Already. Not one day we'll be citizens of heaven. He says we're already citizens of heaven. We're just not there yet. But that's where our citizenship is. We are going to escape the wrath of God. That is the hope for the future of believers. But it ought to change how we live right now. Our future is bright as Christians. And therefore our living, our conduct, our behavior, our choices at home, at school, at work, at play ought to be bright with holiness and godliness as well. Again, I want you to notice this theme that's just all throughout Scripture. Again, the Apostle Peter, in his second letter, he, he connects our future hope to how we live in the present. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So he's talking about what's coming in the future. And then he says, in light of that, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Here's the thing. Whenever we engage in works of light in the middle of a world filled with darkness, we can expect to be attacked. I can only imagine that right now some of you would be just like, like I would be if I was listening to me say this. I would say, that's, you're exactly right, Zach. I'm supposed to live in the light, but golly, that's hard. <laughs> that's hard because the darkness around it, it just pushes in and sometimes it even attacks, right? And, and it's difficult to live as children of light. I agree. Paul agrees. We have an enemy and therefore we need to be protected. But guess what? God 
who has called us to live in holiness has not left us without the protection that we need. We see Paul move from the metaphors of light versus darkness and soberness versus drunkenness to the metaphor of dressing for battle. Paul's not out in, 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 in la-la land somewhere going, oh yeah, just live, live in the light, it's so easy. He knows it's hard. He knows it's hard, and so he goes right into battle language. Without pausing, he goes on in verse 8 with these words, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This isn't just a, just a costume to put on for the fun of it. This is battle garments. He's talking about war. The breastplate and helmet were key pieces of armor worn by Roman soldiers in this day and time. The breastplate basically went, uh, covered your torso, went from your waist up to your neck, and then you had, of course, the helmet covering your head. And Paul uses these pieces of armor which protect from the blows of the enemy as a metaphor for faith, love, and hope. This isn't the first time in, in this letter that Paul is talking about these three, uh, faith, love, and hope. These three really summary words of the Christian life. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul was giving thanks to God for the Thessalonian salvation. And he said this, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What do these three mean? Faith means trusting in Jesus Christ alone and his finished work on the cross to rescue you from your sin. What, what does love mean? Well, love is, is the lifestyle that follows it's the lifestyle that follows. When we trust in Christ, then we not only live in love for the God who saved us, we live in love for other people whom God loves, and we're able to do that because God graciously puts within us His love so that we can live in love for other people. And then hope. What is that talk? future part of our salvation? It's talking about what we get to look forward to as followers of Christ. That day when Jesus finishes the work that he began in us. The day when Christ returns, Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. That's the, that's the hope we have, this work of salvation that God is doing in us. He will finish it. And we'll be welcomed into his glory forever, escaping his wrath. And Paul didn't come up with this metaphor of armor on his own. I think it's helpful to go back to where we first see this armor it's back in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17. It says this, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Now, I know I'm just kind of plucking this verse right out of Isaiah 59, and you don't know the context. But if you were to go back and read the context, the verses around verse 17, you would see that Isaiah is speaking very clearly about the coming Messiah who would judge the wicked and rescue the repentant by providing redemption. I mean, those words are there in Isaiah 59. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. So the he in Isaiah 59 is Jesus. So this armor is the armor of Christ. So what, what do we get to put on as Christians to help us live in righteousness and holiness and living in the light in our world? We get to put on Christ. And I can tell you nothing is going to penetrate Christ. No darkness is going to penetrate him because the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. He has defeated darkness. He has defeated death through his death and resurrection. And so church, we have no excuse not to live in the light. What's Paul saying here? He's saying as we remember who we are, children of light, we should act like children of light, 
putting away works of darkness and walking in holiness and godliness. And as we live this way, we can expect that the enemy will attack, but we don't need to fear because as children of light, we have Jesus as our armor and no blow from the enemy can penetrate the eternal redemption with which he has clothed us. For he's already defeated darkness. Remember, remember what we said? This is gospel encouragement. These, these words are meant to encourage believers, not burden us down and, and kind of kick us and say, oh, you're not doing a good job living for the Lord. We're supposed to be lifted up by this and say, ah, oh, I can live in the light because I have this future hope that I'm looking forward to. Right now, God has clothed me with the armor of who Christ is. And so I can live through Christ in a way that brings him honor and glory. But there's more here. Not only is our current conduct as children of light um, should that align with our future salvation from judgment, but also children of light rest in God's work to save them from judgment. Truth number two is, as children of light, we rest in God's work to save us from judgment. This is so important. As soon as Paul says, helmet of the, uh, the hope of salvation, it's like in Paul's mind, it's like, it's like whenever, whenever you, you, somebody says something that you just really like talking about, and all of a sudden you're off on a tangent and you're talking about that thing, and you forget what you were talking about to begin with. It's almost like Paul does that, but he hasn't forgotten. It, 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 he's making a point here that goes along with his argument, what he's trying to convey to us. But he can't help but just stop and in verses 9 and 10 just expound beautifully on salvation, on what it is. And I want us to dive in deep to verses 9 and 10 and just enjoy, enjoy for a few moments thinking about and celebrating salvation. Now, before we get there, I want to talk about this word rest. We rest in God's work to save us from judgment. What do I mean by rest? I don't mean we take a nap. By rest, I mean what we depend upon. When we rest upon something, we're depending upon that thing. If I were to ask someone, on what are you resting your hope or expectation to get a paycheck at the end of the week? That person might reply, well, I worked all the hours that I was supposed to work. And I did everything my boss told me to and asked me to do. So... I'm resting on that basis. I, I, did, I performed well. I did what I was supposed to do. And therefore, I have a pretty sure hope that I'll be paid at the end of the week. That's what I mean by the word resting, depending upon something. Now, anytime, anytime we speak of how we are to live as Christians, which is what we just spent several, several minutes talking about, right? That we're to align our conduct with who we are in Christ. We're to live the right way. Anytime we speak of how we are to live as Christians, there's always the danger the more I talk to people, the more I realize that this danger is right there, even for Christians, even for people who sit under the preaching of the gospel week in and week out. This danger is always right there. The danger of resting in our good works as the root of our salvation, rather than viewing our good works as the fruit of our salvation. You hear me talk about this, the gospel order, that salvation comes first and then the good works. And yes, we are to live a life of good works, but we never depend upon those good works to save us, or even to add to our salvation. It's tempting to think that the reason I will escape God's judgment is because I've tried my best to live in the light. That is that I've tried my best to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. However, Paul here wants to make sure that the Thessalonian believers realize that their conduct as children of light flows from the work of God, which has delivered them. And so they must rest, not in what they do for God, but in what God has done for them. 
As we pursue godly living, church, we must never think that our living in the light is the reason that we belong to the light. The reason that we are children of light, the reason we have the spiritual armor to protect us against spiritual attacks, the reason we're able to look different than the dark world around us, the reason that we have a hope of salvation is 100% rooted in God's will and work and not in our own. Look at verse 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. These two verses are just so amazing, beautiful, full of wonder, glory, assurance. I love these two verses. These would be two verses that would be great for you to memorize. If you're looking for a couple of verses to memorize, these two would be great, verses 9 and 10. They teach us, uh, they teach us five things about, about our salvation. I want to look at these real briefly. They teach us the foundation, the goal, the agent, the means, and the result. I know that seems like a lot, but, but this is kind of this full, complete picture of our salvation, and it's beautiful. We're going to hit these real quick. First, the foundation of our salvation is God. We have to start there. That's where, that's where the Apostle Paul starts. That's where God's word always starts when it comes to our salvation. Salvation is founded upon God as opposed to us. If you're saved and I were to ask you, how are you saved? I'm not doubting it. I'm just asking you, how, how, how are you saved? There are several different ways you can answer that, but often our response begins with I. Well, I'm saved because I believed in Jesus. I'm saved because I repented of my sin. I'm saved because I asked Jesus to come into my life and save me. Those aren't wrong statements. They're not. Those aren't wrong statements. But if our first thought when it comes to our salvation is what I have done, then I'm probably not giving God the proper credit for my salvation. Because salvation begins with God. If you were to use verse 9 to answer the question, how are you saved, then you would have to start with God. I said, how have you been saved? Tell me about that in your life. According to verse, uh, verse 9, we would have to start with God. God has saved me. God has rescued me. Chapter 1, verse 4 of this, we saw that God chose us for salvation. Chapter 2, verse 12, we saw that God calls us into his kingdom and glory. And here in chapter 5, verse 9, we see that God destines, or another way you could translate that is appoints us for salvation, to escape wrath and instead to obtain salvation. Any way you look at it, salvation belongs with God. He's the author of it. He takes the initiative to save us. He came for us when we were running for him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The foundation of our salvation is God's will to save us. Second, we see the goal of salvation is to escape wrath. The goal of salvation is escape from wrath. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Salvation here is defined as escape from wrath. Like God's sovereignty over salvation, God's wrath also is a theme that keeps popping up in 1 Thessalonians. It's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 10, in chapter 2, verse uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 16. It's alluded to in chapter 3, verse 6. It's described in chapter 5, verse 3. And then Paul mentions God's wrath again in chapter 5, verse 9. In a letter that focuses a lot on the second coming of Christ and the hope we have as believers, you can't get away from the fact the reason our hope is such a good thing is that when Christ returns, there's also going to be wrath. We see in verse 9 the two categories which we talked about last week, those who experience God's wrath and those who experience rescue from God's wrath. God's goal in planning and providing salvation is that we would escape his wrath. And here's the thing. Here's, the, here's why this is such encouraging to Christians. When God resolves to do, to do something, church, he's going to do it. He doesn't set a goal and then fail to accomplish it. We do that. We set goals and we fail to accomplish them. God never does that. 
And so if he's destined us for something, then guess what? He will do what he says he is going to do. He's not going to fail. Our salvation is so secure that Paul can write that salvation and not wrath is something that God has destined us for. God doesn't just point us in the right direction and say, good luck. Maybe you'll escape. Maybe you don't. Who knows? It's, 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 it's up to you. See how holy you can be. No. According to this verse, God has destined us not simply to head in the right direction, but to actually obtain his goal for us, which is escape from his wrath. But how is that? How is that possible? How can he do that? Well, I mean, I'm a sinner. I mean, how can God, how can God look at me and say, and say you're going you're gonna to enjoy my presence forever? I'm a sinner. I should be separated from him forever. How does he do that? Why don't you look next at a person and a work, an agent and the means. Third, we see the agent of salvation. Who is it mediated through? It's through Jesus. He is the agent of our salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, God's holiness demands that his wrath be poured out upon all sin. And God's justice demands that all of his wrath be satisfied. He must punish sin, and he must punish all of it. There's no sin that will not be punished, and therefore the only way for sinners to escape God's wrath is for God to pour out his punishment for sin upon a substitute sacrifice. And the only acceptable substitute sacrifice is someone who is like us in our humanity, but different from us in our righteousness, or perhaps it would be better to say in our unrighteousness. We need a human who is perfect. Only God is perfect, therefore we need God to become man. That's what we need. That is the only hope of salvation. It's the only agent of salvation. The only way salvation can come to us is for God to become man. And guess what? That's exactly what God promised would happen. We look back in Genesis chapter 3. God promised to send a man born of woman to rescue people. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised to send a king who would reign forever. How do you reign forever? You live forever. How can you live forever? Well, you've got to be God. So he promised a king who would be God. And... How then would God promise, uh, how would he send a man born of woman who would also be God? Well, Isaiah chapter 7, he prophesied this. God promised a child would be born to a virgin woman. And the child's name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he combines humanity and deity. It's all promised there. And Paul brings it all here in these three words describing who Jesus is. The Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one who fits that bill. Only one who matches the description. His human name is Jesus. His heavenly name, if you will, is Yahweh, which is referred in Scripture to the, as to the Lord. And he is the Messiah, or the Christ, which means the promised one. There's a lot packed into that name. The Lord, he's God. Jesus, he's human. He's the child born to Mary. And he's Christ. He's the one that God promised. He's the God-man who will come and suffer and reign forever and ever. Suffer for sin and then reign as king forever and ever. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one else fits that bill. That's what we need. We need the God-man who is the promised Savior. And that is Jesus Christ. No one else. No one else. No one else. But he didn't just need to come, say, hey, say some good things, and then head back to heaven. He had to do something. Remember, him coming doesn't satisfy God's wrath against sin. Because there's got to be a sacrifice. And so we've got to race right ahead to the means. The means of salvation, fourth, is the cross of Christ. 
The means of salvation is the cross of Christ. Look at what Paul says right there at the beginning of verse 10, this very short statement, which is, which is loaded with meaning for Christianity. This is what Christianity revolves around. The Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Who died for us. It doesn't make your heart leap for joy as a Christian. You need to ask the Lord to search your heart. Who died for us? Jesus didn't just come like, and walk around and pretend that he was going to be our substitute and then go back to heaven. He came and became our substitute. He went to the cross. When he went to the cross, he took the punishment that you and I deserve, the wrath that we deserve, he took it upon himself on the cross and died in our place. This is the central component of Christianity. Jesus, the God-man, dying in our place. Jesus, the perfect human, absorbing God's wrath towards sinful humans. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we find this familiar verse of Scripture. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the agent, and his death on the cross is the means of our salvation. There is no other agent. There is no other means. I love how Paul wrote it to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5-6. through 6. He said, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus the agent, the mediator, only Jesus. What's the means? Him giving himself as a ransom. For all. He died for us, church. There's nothing greater for our minds to consider, church. There's nothing greater for our hearts to ponder. There is nothing greater for our souls to rest in. There's nothing greater for our lips to speak of. There's nothing greater for our tongue to sing of than that Jesus Christ has died for us. But then what's the result of that? Fifth, the result of salvation is life with him. Notice how Paul just starts at the beginning with God and he ends with us with God. He starts at the beginning with us deserving wrath but escaping wrath through Jesus who dies for us. And what's the result? We have a reconciled relationship with him. We get to live with him. Paul gives this statement at the end of verse 10, so that, here's the result, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now Paul, he jumps back to using the word asleep in the same way that he did back in chapter 4. Now when he talks about asleep in verse, being asleep in verse 10, he's talking about death. He's talking about being awake. He's talking about being physically alive, physically dead, physically alive. So that whether we are awake or asleep, so that whether we are dead or alive physically, we might live with him. If we have believed in salvation, we will live with him. Romans chapter 14, verses 8 through 9, Paul says this, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. This is the great hope of the Christian life, church, that one day, one day we will live with God, that our relationship with God has been reconciled and, and we'll escape his wrath and have eternal life with Jesus Christ. And there's nothing better than this. I love one of my favorite verses in the Psalms, Psalm chapter 84, verse 10. 
Because so often we get, we get so enamored with the things of this world that a phrase like, we will live with him, it doesn't, it doesn't like make us jump for joy. Like, we'll live with him. Okay, we'll live with him. But we, our, our minds get clouded with all the, all the pretty things of this life. But notice, notice what Psalm chapter 84, verse 10 says. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. As you think about you're like your, your dream vacation spot, wherever that is. Maybe it's in the mountains, maybe it's the beach, maybe it's down in the Caribbean. I don't know where it is. Your dream vacation spot, wherever it is. This is what Paul is saying. One day, one day spent in the courts of God is better than a thousand days there. Wherever your dream, dream vacation spot is on this earth, one day, however much fun you would have, a thousand days in that place, one day in the presence of Jesus would be, would be far greater, would surpass it by leaps and bounds. So much so that it would be better just to be a servant in, in the house of the Lord than be sitting on the beach having someone serving you. That's how awesome it is to be in the presence of Jesus. What's Paul's point? What God has done in the past in planning and providing for our salvation combined with what he will do in the future in completing our salvation motivates us to live in the present in joyful obedience to the God of our salvation. Church, we run from the works of darkness because we are children of light. And we are children of light not because we try to run from the works of darkness, but because we have been rescued from the darkness by the will and the work of God. So we're motivated to do good works for God while we rest in the good work that God has done for us. I just wonder if you're resting in God's work of salvation for you today. Or are you trying to rest in your work, in what you try to do for God? Don't rest in that. There is no rest in what you do. Our only rest is in Christ and in Christ alone. But then we got to get this last verse. Verse verse 11. Truth number three is this. Children of light strengthen the church as they await the time of judgment. Last verse, verse 11, Paul sum, sums up everything he wants to say and then gets to this last point. He gives this beautiful summarization of the gospel of salvation. And then he says this, verse 11. He says, therefore, therefore, so in light of everything I've just said, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. If you've been keeping up with our study of 1 Thessalonians, especially if you were here a couple weeks ago, this is exactly how Paul ended chapter 4. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now the end of this passage about the day of the Lord, the rescue from wrath that believers in Christ look forward to, Paul says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. Paul always has on his mind the ongoing health and strength of the church. We don't have time to get into why that is and the importance of the church to the mission of God. But Paul always has on his mind not the health and the strength of just individual Christians out there trying to live on their own. He has always on his mind the health of the gathered body of believers, the church. I think verse 11 leaves us with a couple of points of application for building strong churches. This is what we want to happen. As we study God's word, as we relish in the gospel truth, we want to, we want to be a strong church. One is this, a strong church will be filled with good theologians. A strong church healthy church will be filled with good theologians. I know we don't always think about ourselves as theologians, but you know a theologian is somebody who thinks about God. That's really all a theologian is. Somebody, some people do that for their living, but we all think about God. It just means to study God. So if you ever thought about God, you've been a, you've been a theologian. But I don't know if you've been a good theologian, right? It's different between being a theologian, thinking thoughts about God, and being a good one. What, what makes a good theologian? Someone who thinks accurate thoughts about God. Where do we get accurate thoughts about God? His word. So a good theologian 
goes to God's word, studies about who God is, and whatever God says about himself, that's what that person thinks and believes. And so a church, a strong church, means that we need to be good theologians. Where do you get that from verse 11? Because we need, to, we need to be immersed in what Paul is saying. Verses 9 and 10, resting in salvation. Back in verses 6, 7, and 8, a salvation that then leads us to good works. We need to know these things, church. We need to know them, and we need to be able to articulate them to others, which leads us to the second point of application. Not only do we want to be good theologians, a strong church is going to be filled with active theologians. Theologians, people who think right thoughts about who God is, they understand the gospel truth well, and they're active in encouraging one another with these gospel truths. They don't just sit on the information, the right information that they know about God. They use this right information to encourage one another. As Christians, we have reason to live with hope. As Christians, we have reason to not live in fear of judgment. And as Christians, we have reason to live lives of holiness. But church, as we've said, we have an enemy who is aiming at us. We have a dark world that is pressing in on us. And so we need to be encouraged. And we need to be encouraged by one another. In moments of temptation, we need one another to remind us that our present behavior needs to align with our future hope. And in moments of arrogance, we need one another to remind us that even though our lives should be filled with good works, we don't rest in those good works. Jesus has done it all. And in moments of failure, when we fail to live as children of light, we need one another to remind us that Jesus died for us and God still loves us and he has promised that he will complete the salvation that we have. And so we don't have to give up hope just because we have messed up. Because remember, we're not resting in our good works, we're resting in the work of Christ. And listen, I need you to remind me of that, and and you need me to remind you of that, and you need to remind one another of that. That's a part of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And so, we've heard from the Lord church it does matter how you live if you belong to the light you ought to have actions you ought to have conduct you ought to have words coming out of your mouth you ought to have behavior that looks like god has saved you from sin not that you still belong to that sin but as we walk in the light we rest in what god has done for us and we encourage one another with these gospel truths And so, if you're a believer today in Christ, if you belong to the light, then I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. Are you walking in the light? Does your life look like who you are in Jesus? Or does your life look as dark as the world around you? Does your, is your actions, are your actions, are your speech, is is that all lining up with who you are in Christ? Secondly, for believers, are you still resting in what Jesus did for you? You're, you're trying your best according to the strength that God has put in you to live for Jesus, but you're still depending upon what Jesus has done for you. Or have you slipped into thinking that, well, God probably loves me a little bit better than this person because I do this for God. No, God's love for you rests in his love for you, not in your ability to perform for him. So are you living for him while resting in what Christ has done? And are you encouraging one another? But I have to, I have to ask you this. Perhaps you're not in the light. Perhaps you're not in the light. But today, you've heard the gospel. 
that God loves you so much that he, of his own choice, he didn't wait for you to come begging for salvation. He went ahead and sent Jesus. He's already done everything necessary for your salvation. All you have to do is to receive this free gift by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And maybe that's step faith that you need to take today. To close out our time, I want you to do one thing. Not for me, but for God. Just be obedient. Be obedient to whatever the Lord is calling you to do today. However He wants you to respond to His Word. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, would you just help us in this moment to ask you, God, how do you want me to respond to your word? How do you want me to respond to your word? And help me to be obedient. Church, would you just take a moment and ask the Lord that? How do you want me to respond to your word today? And then ask for God's help in being obedient. I'm going to give you just a minute to ask the Lord that question for you to respond in prayer.